0: So much thanks to Nancy Munn and Bill Gans and Ben Rudiak-Gould, who are singing from the McHondry room. Consigned still to the dungeons that we can dream, can't we? But it's fabulous to have them with us. We send our love to the dungeons and our gratitude. Oh, this is interesting. Hmm. I have a page that is a complete mess. Hmm. All right, I'm a manuscript preacher, so having a page that's a complete mess is not a great thing, but okay. We'll see how it goes. I have never been much of a costume person, but freshman year in college, the school I went to had a strange tradition of a big party that would happen at the mausoleum where the founding family was buried. It's macabre, but you're a freshman. It's time to leap into things with abandon. So I started talking to a friend of mine about costumes. Eric was a local Bay Area person and a theater person and an incredible creative brainstormer. So we started thinking of what to do. And he suggested we go to his high school, which was only an hour away, where he still, I think I remember, had the key to the costume closet and I think asked for permission. But anyway, we went there and opened the closet and he picked something out. And I don't remember what he picked out for himself, but he found this dress, this little girl's dress that looked perilously small. And he said, this is for you. You're going to be Pippi Longstocking. a pair of long socks, a clothes hanger unwound and put through my hair and through two braids, eyeliner used to make big freckles. And I was transformed, in fact, that October night into a heroine of mishap and single living. The costume was an incredible hit. So much so that the year after graduation, back home in New York City and still able to miraculously squeeze into it. I didn't hesitate when a friend asked if I wanted to march with them in the Greenwich Village Halloween Parade. And so there we were, I think some of you already know this, right behind the May West marching band. And I had my five minutes of fame, waving to people as they yelled out my name, wanted to shake my hand, even joining them in song. I am Pip. Pippy long stocking if you say it fast it's funny. Pippy Pippy Long stocking how I love my happy name I had a kind of jaunty swagger in those moments that I rarely otherwise I think experience. Costumes are these powerful vehicles, aren't they? For personal liberation, for trying on a new sense of ourselves, for inhabiting a new being. And I found out recently that it isn't just us who has this experience. My daughter just finished her field hockey season. For home games, knowing that dogs were allowed, we would all bring our dogs. And though they didn't outnumber children at the games, it came close. One of the most favorite of the fans, the four-legged fans, was this dog, Ranger. Ranger is a golden doodle, <clears throat> fluffy and bouncy. He loved being at the games, his owner told me, and he's a hoot to have there. For instance, if you start to cheer, Ranger starts to bark, and if you go, woohoo. Ranger thinks you're howling and he howls and once we figured that out well you know we probably howled more than we cheered Howl, oh, go team anyway Ranger also wears a costume my daughter's school logo mascot I don't know what you call it is the red devil <clears throat> and if you want to see Ranger in his red devil costume you just have to look at the front of your order of service What is hilarious, though, is that at the last game, standing next to Rangers owner, Dodie, I said how much fun he had been, how much fun it had been to have him at the games. And she said, he loves the games. And he loves the costume. I mean, when I even take it out, he starts getting all excited because he knows he's going to a game. And here's the kicker, she said, He's normally a shy dog. He hides behind me when we go places, but when he's in costume, he comes out with, of his shell. So people, we are not alone. Ranger is also transformed by his costume, as some of us are, have been at times. Movies, books, so often have the trope of the disguise, the masquerade ball in which inevitably people do things or say things or connect and move through the world in ways that normally society or habit would constrain them. Where people fall in love across class or barrier that they don't see when there's a costume between them. Cinderella wears a costume, So does Viola in Twelfth Night. Robin Williams, the famously quirky and somewhat unreliable husband, remember, becomes the more dutiful and trusted caretaker as the nanny in Mrs. Doubtfire. Costumes change people, change the way they are seen and able to move through the world, change the way they do see themselves. I remember Tony Robbins, the motivational speaker, saying in one of his talks, when did you learn you couldn't do the things you can't do? It was this wonderful reframe in the form of a question, another way of saying that we learn the things that we cannot do at some point in time, and that learning has a dangerous sticking power, maybe more than it should, And as a corollary, you might say that at some point, we learn also who we are and can be or can't. When did you learn the person that you can't be? Maybe then costumes give us some way into a way of being for a day or a night, the person we thought we couldn't be but always yearned to be, to test the limits. Dennis, Sam, and me, we all found that a little bit in a disguise. And perhaps, perhaps all of life, perhaps each new chapter starts with some kind of pretending. I remember the first time I went into a hospital room as a seminarian, person in training, The head of the chaplaincy department at the hospital said to us all, just go in and say, hi, I'm, and say your name, and say, I'm a chaplain. How are you today? And because I was forced to do it, I did it. But inside, while I said those words, my head was screaming, I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't even play a chaplain on TV. Most of us. Start our work life just as one example, but any new chapter of our work life, I think, feeling like we're putting on some kind of a disguise. We buy the clothes, the costume that seems to indicate we might be worthy of the job. We grab the briefcase or the fireman's gear, fireperson's gear, or we put on the minor league bravado. We step out onto the field and we do it. Until we blend in, doesn't it kind of feel that way? Fake it till you make it. That's the advice we give folks in such moments. And really, what is that but telling people to use disguise as a strategy to success? And it works. It gets harder, this way of being in the world though, when that disguise is tied up in fear or shame of being found out as in some way fundamentally unworthy of whatever it is we're pretending to be. For people who are, for instance, not born into normative culture or whichever normative culture prevails, costuming and pretending can be toxic because of the messages that say that anything non-normative is allowed in on trial or until we reveal our difference. In these moments, success and acceptance is conditioned on a permanent kind of hiding. And there's coercion to that reality that's about control and power over the other that asks them not to be other. I know people, and I'm sure you do too, and maybe it's been you, and maybe it still is you in certain times and places who have felt that kind of forced disguise. Who have felt the need to disguise forever that they grew up poor, but because of education or luck or hard work, found themselves in more elite circles economically or who came from immigrant communities and learned to disguise their accent and blend in as quickly as possible, or people of color talk about code switching, right, which is in part the need to learn how to act in one way to succeed in white culture, and another at home with family and friends, but no sense that one way of being would be acceptable in both places. Women historically, and in some places still have to, had to learn how to pass and disguise their differences. I mean this robe is a huge disguise, right? One woman I know who was the first department chair at AT AT&T when it was the kind of promised land of engineering in America filled with men. Erna had three children. But she also had learned not to draw attention to herself as different or with different needs. I'd go to the bathroom, Vanessa, she said, at the headquarters, and I'd express breast milk into a shot glass and dump it so no one knew I was nursing, which is to say, so there would be one less piece of evidence to identify her in anyone's minds as a woman. We are amazingly adaptable, strategic creatures we human beings. But there's a lot of soul energy spent on the soul-crushing work of figuring out who we need to pretend to be to be loved or safe or successful. In a 2015 documentary, The Mask You Live In by Jennifer Siebel Newsome, Governor's former wife, I think, right? His wife currently. Oh, thank you. She does, in this film, examines with others notions of masculinity in the United States. If any of you have seen it, you know that. And how those notions of masculinity get taught and reinforced in boys and in men and at what cost. One of the metaphors that one educator, Ashanti Branch, uses in the interview is the mask. He talks about the mask that the boys he is educating and working with in the school prepare to put on a mask each day before they go to school to make it safely through the world. The one, he says, that they then sometimes forget to take off and even forget how to take off. The psychologists and sociologists and school leaders who are interviewed name the cost of this permanent disguise. At the age that boys stop talking about their feelings and about late puberty, stop confiding in friends about their vulnerabilities and feel comfortable showing affection, internalize the message that they're supposed to be self-sufficient and in control and not acknowledge any need to feel safe and loved and cared for, by that time, by the time they do all that, make that transition to internalizing the messages, suicide rates for boys go up to five times what they are for girls, and by age 20, that number is seven times the rate of suicide. And depression, which most often shows up in boys as anger or violence or a shutting down and an inwardness is often accepted instead as just signs of strong, then silent, boys and men, a kind of idealized norm of masculinity. That's a disguise of its own. During interviews with the male students and the other men in the movie, at one point a facilitator asks the boys or young men to finish a sentence that's all about taking off the disguise. Complete the phrase. Please, they're asked. If you really knew me, you would know. If you could be vulnerable and transparent, show what you are afraid to show, it's essentially asking, what would it be? And the boys say all kinds of things. Normal, beautiful things. You would know I lost my mother in fifth grade, one of the boys said. His friends don't know that. And all of it, just a life that would be healed by connection of the very kind that this forced disguise gets completely in the way of. True for boys and men, We can only imagine how much more true for people who are gender non-binary or queer or trans. And we know the rates of suicide, so we know that's true. What costumes do you wear? And what does it hide? And could you risk taking it off Can you find, do you know, the places where it's safe to take it off? Is it safe here? Because it should be. We should make it that way, right? And In the spirit of Halloween, in what ways do you want to stretch and grow? What limits did you learn, did we learn long ago that we might test again? And what costume would we wear in order to do it? What experiment in the larger sense in the world might we step into to do that? At a mausoleum on the big stage of the Big Apple Streets behind a band of bosomy men dressed as Mae West in their own quest to stretch and grow beyond their learned limits, I imagine. I got to explore what it could mean for an afternoon, evening to be bigger than life and audacious and capable of fighting pirates, Pippi in all her outrageousness, still loved by her captain father. and, as it turned out, by the fans at the side of the parade. And Dennis learned he could delight children, didn't you, Dennis? Be exuberant in the world and let it play out its magic inside you and outside you, with a costume and a red nose, all blessed and made, some of it, by mom, which mattered. And Sam, you took your first steps into the adult world of women and men behind the veil of a character name in a game and learned the dance, I imagine, of being in the community that waited for you just around the corner of adolescence. Disguises are necessary sometimes. Disguises are powerful vehicles for growth and change and expression. Disguises can be deadly. So we commit this day in particular to making a world in which people can enjoy their disguises when wearing them expands their sense of presence in life and a world in which everyone is safe to take them off. Two. So may it be. Happy Halloween.
1: I was a kid when the commercial internet first came out, and my dad cautioned me for my own safety to never use my real name or tell anybody who I really was. I would always sign up for services online with the name of one of my video game characters, my gamer tag. I still haven't fully migrated off the Gmail I signed up with that name. That anonymity was a boon. When I was playing an online game, people didn't immediately know that I was just some immature kid. They had to wait a few minutes until I said something immature before they realized that. A lot of times, women and girls get harassed online, but if one of them is playing a video game and uses a generic name and a male character, then other people would treat them just like they treat me. There's something very meritocratic about that. When you're wearing a disguise, people have no choice but to judge you for your actions. And of course, it's not just about games. I work in tech and some big tech companies mask the names on resumes because of some studies that white-sounding names and male-sounding names are more likely to get an interview, even when those names are attached to the very same resumes. Unsurprising that some of my friends who were women of color had a much harder time than me getting their first job out of college. After all, most companies use your real name, and they'll probably look at your LinkedIn, too, which has a picture on it. Anonymous freedom was one of the promises of the early internet. And it didn't really start to change until Facebook came around and started telling people they had to use their real names. I was actually at Google when they started working on the ill-fated Google Plus, And one of the big controversies then was that Google was following suit with strict requirements on names. They required a first and a last name, so people like Madonna couldn't even sign up until they let her put in a period as her last name. The superstar, Madonna Dot. We had a petition going around called Real Names Considered Harmful talking about things like dead naming of trans people, talking about how important pseudonyms were for activists in the Arab Spring, talking about how one person's disguise is another person's safety and identity. But we know that anonymity isn't all meritocracy and social change. When I was in high school, I was part of an underground paper. The paper started out anonymous, but one of the students in the year before me used their anonymity to badmouth one of the school administrators so the school figured out who is who. And in my year, we still used pseudonyms, but the administrators all knew who we were. Sure, there's cyberbullying and hate speech online, but it's not just online that people use a disguise as an excuse to be a jerk. Anonymity gives certain freedom, freedom to be yourself and have fun, or freedom to harm without consequence. That's what trick-or-treating is all about, right? Give candy to the superhero at your door, or under cover of night, a masked villain might egg your house. Happy Halloween, everybody. Make sure to bring plenty of sweets for all the ghouls and goblins out there.
2: I'm overqualified to be a clown. So I'm clowning around at Fisherman's Wharf when some joker from a passing car window shouts, hey clown, your mother dresses you funny. Then, cackling, they're gone, a drive-by shouting. But they only knew how right they were. It was true. My saintly mother, Ann Adams, was a pretty skilled seamstress who often over the years fashioned my colorful clown clothing and fancy collars. So yes, my mother did dress me funny, as you can clearly see but that was never the insult it was intended to be. I was so proud and truly privileged to wear the beautiful outfits she made for me. We've probably all enjoyed playing dress up from time to time, at least for Halloween. I cannot recall many of my childhood costumes as I was constantly changing my mind and so often ended up becoming a hybrid of several different characters. For instance, I'd be torn between cowboy or astronaut and so would end up being the first space cowboy, years before that song came out, by the way. I loved becoming different characters and noticed on comedy shows folks like Red Skelton, Flip Wilson, Jonathan Winters, and Carol Burnett, often with just a simple prop hat, scarf, or coat, would transform in a flash into a whole different person. From my youth, I'd been on stage in theatrical productions, and so from early on came to appreciate how important makeup and costumes are. One of my favorite TV shows growing up was Mission Impossible because how they were always assuming different characters in order to advance their goals. Often a nurse's uniform or a security guard outfit would alter people's perceptions and make them more pliable to the Mission Impossible team. I also loved the Wild Wild West show because Ross Martin, as Secret Service agent Artemis Gordon appeared in nearly every episode in some disguise, changing his voice and appearance physically and costume-wise to become different. Of course, these days the true spirit of Samhain, scaring away bad spirits, and Dia de los Muertos, remembrances of good spirits, have become somewhat diluted by the powerful, ubiquitous candy industry into a celebration of all things sugar. One of the most difficult things about performing at children's birthday parties was their abundant sugar intake and subsequent nuclear reactions and even meltdowns. Still, that's another time children enjoy dressing up and getting the odd face painting, allowing them to assume a new or different personality according to their fantastic minds and wishes. With my trusty, twisty animal balloons, I'd often outfit a child with balloon helmet, sword, and scabbard watching them instantly trans into a pirate or one of Robin Hood's merry band. Interacting with children at play was always one of the most delightful and rewarding aspects of my times as Poindexter the clown. Kids tend to have far fewer filters on their emotions and I love how that translates into the characters they assume and create. After 44 years wearing a motley garb, my greatest legacy may be all the smiles, laughter and mirth I helped to create with these angelic beings. I'm wearing a bright example of my mother's legacy for all to see today. She had a real eye for color and contrast. And it is always with reverence toward my mother's memory that I'll wear even the simplest clown collar or costume. It was so tremendously validating to have my mom as both head costumer and president of the Poindexter the Clown Appreciation Society. (laughs) Whatever character or creature, animal, mineral, or vegetable you turn out as this year, I hope you have a fun time. That's what it should be all about. Not how much candy you can acquire. Yeah, right. But how much fun you can have, scaring people, being scared by people, or simply celebrating our creativity together and remembering those who've crossed over and possibly occupy a different plane now. Happy Halloween. And next week, we'll be delving a little more deeply into both Samhain and Dia de los Muertos.